What a blessing we have to be a part of what God is doing in the world. So many wonderful lives. We are just a small part in a big kingdom. We're also a small part of a long church history. So I thought perhaps a little, uh, a little slice of church history as we get started this morning. What do you think of when I say the word doxology? A song. Praise God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. How many of you have sung the doxology before? How many of you have sung the doxology many times before? How many of you have sung the doxology many times in many different church traditions before? Yeah. We know it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's been stuck in my mind the last few days. Because of the words that we have looked at together in Romans 1, you remember Paul states that the problem with humanity is that what can be known about God through his creation, his divine nature, his creative power, has been rejected by humanity. And for that reason, the wrath of God, Paul says in Romans 1, as we have read together, is upon all creation. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. It's an exhortation to acknowledge and to praise God. It was written, interestingly enough, 1674. Written by an English churchman named Thomas Ken. And he wrote the song during a time when the church believed that only scripture should be sung as hymns in the church, with a special emphasis upon psalms. And and to to add to that was akin to adding to the scripture. It was viewed by most as blasphemy. So it was in that spirit that Thomas Ken wrote this and several other hymns for the boys at Winchester College where he was an instructor, but he, he gave strict instructions to those boys to only use these songs in their private devotions and in their rooms. I think the boys disobeyed because you all have sung those songs. And interestingly enough, the doxology as we know it was actually the final stanza to another song that he had written. It was the 12th stanza to a song that he had written. And uh, I thought that we should put all 12 of those stanzas on the screen this morning and learn them and sing them together. (laughs) Not really. But it was kind of fun to see Rachel panic for a moment back there because she was pretty sure she didn't have those 12 stanzas. But I do wonder, I couldn't find this as I was reading a little bit about the history of it and Thomas Ken, what was the inspiration, but but Romans 1, oh, that's, that's what Paul is saying. All of creation, all of humanity has, has the responsibility to praise and thank God. How about you? Do you think about those words that you sing that we know so well to the doxology? More importantly, do you believe those words? 
Do all the blessings in your life come from God? Do all the blessings in your life flow from who he is? Do all the creatures on earth and do all the creatures in heaven have a responsibility to praise God for who he is and for what he gives? So then, is the highest priority of your life to give praise and thanks to God? Is the highest priority of my life to give praise and thanks to God, if people were to identify us for what they see being the predominant practice, the predominant habit of our lives, would they say, oh, that person is just constantly giving thanks to God for everything. What a testimony that would be. Paul says that humanity is without excuse for not doing so. For God has left a clear message And it's written in his creation, pointing to his eternal power and his divine nature. And so if humanity as a whole, according to Scripture, is without excuse for its lack of glorifying God and giving thanks to God, then those who know God, his people, us, those who who bear that precious title of children of God, for us it should be unfair thinkable to go about our daily lives without the express purpose of bringing glory to God in everything that we do. Constant pursuit of bringing attention, calling attention to Him. And it ought to be accompanied by an abundant flow of praise and thanks coming from their mouths. Wow. Greg, I was struck by your words, feeling hypocritical when we sing some of those words. I I couldn't help but think, you know, just take a ticket and get in line, you know? Because that's where probably most of us live our lives. And yet one of the things that we want to do when we come together to worship is we encourage one another to, to, to be about what is important, to be about the business that, that God calls us to, to be the people that he has created us and redeemed us to be. So that's why we are giving this entire month to a better understanding of what it means to be a people who give thanks to God. It's not just the day. It's, it's a lifestyle. We've said it's, it's thanks living. Thanks living. We have no excuses for not thanking him in the way that he deserves. And God is right in wanting us to do so. Turn to your neighbor and ask them this question. Is God right for wanting us to praise and thank him all the time? See what your neighbor says. Of course they're going to say yes because they're in church and that's the right answer. But ask them anyway. Okay, your neighbor said yes, right? Was there any hesitation on the part of your neighbor? Did you have any hesitation yourself? So, what do you think? Does God have an ego problem? Okay, okay. A measure, an indicator of something. So, Ellen, he's worthy. He's worthy. End of discussion. He's worthy. Okay. What else? 
Okay. And that certainly is what Paul indicates in, in the text that we've used in this, in this series. Yeah, we, we turn our attention, our exaltation, our praise somewhere else. Doug, you were going to add, I think. That is, yeah, that is so profound if we really think about that. It's a benefit to us that draws us closer to him, which is the greatest benefit of all. If only we really believed that. Or if only, okay, I'll personalize it. I lived as if I believed it. Donna, you were going to add something too. Well, of course, says Donna. (laughs) Implied, what a stupid question that was. Yeah, the struggle of sometimes, how do we understand that? You know, God is is perfect. He is is not created. He is... He is not struggling through life as a fallen creature as we do. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a great challenge for us to understand that, that the primary reason for our being created, and we've said this many times at Applewood, is to live in relationship with God. We weren't created because he was lonely. We weren't created because he had a garden that needed tilling. We weren't created because there were weeds to pull and flowers to fertilize. We were created to live in relationship with Him because God gives. And out of God's self-giving nature, knowing that there is nothing better to give than God's self, He creates so that those who are created and in His presence can enjoy the beauty and the wonder of who He is. That's why we say often, life is not about us. It is about God. And if we believe that there is any other reason for which he created us, rather than being in awe and wonder and enjoyment of him, then we are making creation about us. And it's not about us. It is about him. Have you ever wondered why there are so many prohibitions in the Old Testament against idolatry? Why is idolatry a problem? Is it because God is selfish and egotistical and he doesn't want to share his glory with others? No. It's because God is perfect and he is loving and oh, by the way, there are no others. And so, why would he be delighted in people who turn away from the only source of life that there is? The only source of beauty that there is the only source of nourishment that there is. One of the prophets in the Old Testament, I think it's Ezekiel, talks about God's condemnation, his his anger towards his people because, because he is the one who is the well of life, the spring of refreshment. And what do his people do? They constantly turn the other way and seek refreshment out of broken cisterns that are filled with with sand and debris. What an image. What an image. And and we as God's people have got to understand that that there is nothing in life that we need besides God. That is our primary function is to live in relationship with Him. He created humanity for Himself. His intent was was for his creation to delight in him for all eternity, needing nothing else but him. Because there is no end to his beauty and wonder and sufficiency. It hurts my brain to think about living for eternity. 
I can't, I just can't wrap myself around that because I'm finite. But we're going to. We're going to live for eternity. And those who are his children are going to live with him for eternity. What in the world are we going to do sometimes, we ask? I don't know. But what I know is that there is enough of him to fill all of us with wonder and awe and amazement and excitement and deep satisfaction for eternity. You're looking excited about this concept. It's better than a harp on a cloud. Okay? But the possibility, the possibility that God is not everything that we need, the possibility that there could be something else, well, that's what was introduced by the enemy in the Genesis 3 narrative. That, that maybe there's something else. So the original plan and the design was thwarted by sin, but even that, that doesn't stop the goodness of God. It flows from Him because He is good. We saw that last week. He is perfect goodness. God does not choose to be good. We do that some of the time. God does not choose to be good. God is good. And so the challenge for us in this last week was, was to be ten- intentional in our, in our giving thanks to God for who He is. It is so important to remember that, that God is always who He is. He's always perfect in every way, always So it is always right for us to praise and thank Him for who He is. Lee, your comments about we know that we're we're not perfect. I'm I'm always reminded of this when I'm sitting with a family and we're planning a memorial service for one of their family members. Wow. You listen to the stories and and you hear the things that people say and, and I always go away from those meetings wondering, what's my family going to say about me? Have you ever thought about that? They're going to say something about you. They really are. And, and, and there is there's that sense in me because I know me. I know, I, I know what I'm hoping they won't say. And perhaps you have felt that same thing. <laughs> like it's going to matter a whole lot when we're dead. But there is that sense of shame that comes because we are imperfect and fallen creatures. We know that there are things about us that are not worth praising. There's just that little voice that sometimes that rises up in us that says, well, yeah, that's nice, but if you only knew. God never feels that. He never does. We must thank Him. For who he is in all of his perfection, he will never get tired of hearing the praises and the thanks of his people. Oh, that's enough, kids. Let's go on to something else now. Like there is something else? Like there could be something better? Like there could be a more meaningful activity? No. You see how we've got we to wrestle with this stuff to, to, to get our, our thinking in the right place. And it's out of his perfect goodness that we need to be thanking him for, that the next item of thanks flows. It ought to never be far from our lips. It's in Romans chapter 5 this morning that I want us to read. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. 
Paul has been writing about justification by faith. You know, and, and we sometimes phrase justification, it's just as if I had never sinned. It's a, it's a simple, great way to understand justification. By the blood that was shed on the cross by Christ, we are justified through our faith and our belief in him that what he has done on that cross is sufficient for our salvation. There is nothing that we could have done. There is nothing that we have yet to do. It is done. And God, God gives to us salvation based on our heart's belief in what Christ has done, knowing who we were and what he has done for us. He uses Abraham as an example And he's been talking about Abraham. I just want to give you a little context so that when we jump in, you know where Paul has been. If you want to read more of this, go home this afternoon, read through Romans chapter 4, read on through Romans chapter 5. But he's been talking about Abraham, and he says that Abraham was not a righteous man. (laughs) That's because in Romans chapter 3, he says there's no one who's righteous. Well, of course Abraham wasn't a righteous man. Nobody is on planet Earth. But he was counted as righteous because he trusted God. Because he believed God. Paul writes the words, it was credited to him. God credited righteousness to Abraham. Well, you talk about a perfect credit score. This is it. Abraham's credit score was off the charts. Because he believed in God, God credited to him. Paul then gives this commentary. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but for us. To whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. For those of you who may have ever thought that the resurrection is not that important, think again. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification, Paul says. That's where he's been. So let's stand and let's read these verses from Romans chapter 5. Here we go. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Big thanks to God. Yeah, okay. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Rachel, can we put 5.8 back on the screen? Maybe not. There it is. All right. Probably one of those verses that if you've been in the church a long time, this is one that you, uh, you memorized. If you haven't memorized it, you've certainly heard it. This is... Uh, This is big on the importance radar in terms of church life teaching. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. Now, I want you to ask your neighbor this question. Two. Two neighbor questions. Did I respond to that sensitively enough, Monica? (laughs) What does this verse that is on the screen tell us about the character of God? Now, I know you know this, but this is so important that we've got to be reminded of it. Okay? So just turn and ask your neighbor, what does this verse tell us about the character of God? Okay, here we go. It is the second neighbor question. I can't give you as much time, okay? What's it tell us about God? Go ahead, just shout it out. Unconditional love. Amazing grace. (laughs) He is not like me. Thanks be to God, he is not like any of us. His mercy is unending. He demonstrates his love. (laughs) We fish don't have to be clean for him to love us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know this. We're valuable. We're valuable to him. We know this stuff, right? But we struggle to live it. It becomes so familiar. But the language that Paul uses here to paint this distinct picture of God is, is, is so special. You know, and he sets it up with those verses that we read that you know, sometimes people, you know, they'll, they'll rarely die for a righteous person. You know, that's, that's the idea of, of a person who sees themselves as, as self-righteous. You know, who's going to die for a person who says they're righteous, but we know they're not? Somebody might take the rap for a person who's good, that's the idea of someone who actually cares about someone else and, and, and even demonstrates that from time to time. But the language that Paul uses essentially is language of, come on, really, who's going to do something like this? People really don't like to die for other people unless they think that they're really worth it. <laughs> who does this kind of thing? Paul says, but God, but God. It just defies our human reason is what Paul is saying. He says, you know, we as, as human people, we, we, we don't even think like this as people. But look what God does. No one would do something like this. No one but God. I love the story that, that Yancey tells if you've read his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. You remember he describes a conference that was happening at Cambridge University long ago when C.S. Lewis was, was teaching there. And some folks had gathered together and they were uh, talking about comparative religions and, and they were trying to identify what, if anything, was unique to the Christian faith. So they began eliminating the possibilities. The incarnation, maybe? Eh, other religions had different versions of their gods appearing in human form. How about the resurrection? Well, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. Evidently, this had gone on for some time when, when Lewis happened to wander into the room and he said, his question was, so what's the rumpus all about here? And when he was informed about what they were discussing, he said to them, very matter-of-factly, that's easy, it's grace. It's grace. And after some more discussion, the story is that the conferees had to agree. It is grace. Yancey writes, the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. And he's right. Again, listen. Listen to those two lines that that Paul uses to describe 
the situation at just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There we are again, sinners. We are powerless, we are ungodly, we are sinners. You combine those two and what do you have? Well, you've got a situation in which people are living in bad places and can do nothing about it. Nothing. But God, writes Paul, but God. The only one who can do anything about the situation in the midst of hopelessness, but God, what does he do? Well, first, he demonstrates his own love. That is such a great phase. His own love. It's not my love, my understanding of love. It's not your understanding of love. It's not just any love. It's his own brand of love. And it's love like no other. It's out of the perfect character of who he is that it flows. This perfect love flows from this perfect God and it fixes brokenness. The word that Paul uses here that we translate demonstrate, the neat word, it it means to stand with or to stand near, to show, to prove, to exhibit, to put together. And I like this one, to unite parts into one whole. How rich is that? God had been communicating his love to people for ages, but it wasn't sufficient. And so in the life and the death of his son, God came to stand near us, to be with us, and to unite, to bring together all those partial expressions of his love that we had not understood through the ages into one complete package at one time in his son. John, the apostle, wrote in one of his letters in the New Testament, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God demonstrates his own love. He's a God who acts. He's a God who steps into disaster and fixes it. The second thing is that he demonstrates his love for us. He demonstrates his love for us. Now, let's just humble ourselves for a moment and be really honest about who we are. And there's not a one of us that deserves that kind of love. You, me, we are part of that humanity that stood hopelessly separated from God And we were the recipients of his holy wrath. That's, remember our primary text in Romans chapter 1, that's the wrath of God being revealed against all humanity. We were a part of that crowd. But his love, his love found us. And as a result of his love demonstrated to us while we were sinners living in rebellion against him, Paul then asks a very rhetorical question. Rachel, can we have verse 9? Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? How much more shall we be saved? Is there any more saving to be done? Paul is, is, Paul is talking a, 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 what, what theologians refer to as, as positional theology here. 
What has happened on the cross in terms of our redemption is complete and thorough enough to save us from the wrath that we learned about in chapter 1 that is being revealed against those who have rejected God. And again, you're looking excited about this. Woohoo! Oh, completely and forever is how we've been saved. Now, I know that this is not news to you. I assume that I've not told any of you anything that you don't already know or you haven't heard somewhere along the way, but, but how well do you understand what you know? How well do I get it? The perfection of God's love, the, the perfect completion of, of forgiveness in Christ. In her book entitled Give Them Grace, Elise Fitzpatrick writes this story. She says the primary reason that the majority of kids from Christian homes stray from the faith, faith is that they never really heard it or they never really had it to begin with. She says, you scratch the surface of the faith of the young people around you and you'll find a disturbing deficiency of understanding of even the most basic tenets of Christianity. She said, this is demonstrated by a conversation that I had with a young woman. She'd been raised in a Christian home and she assured me that she was saved. And so I asked her, what does it mean to be a Christian? She replied, it means that you ask Jesus into your heart. Yes, all right. But what does that mean? It means that you ask Jesus to forgive you. Okay, but... What do you ask him to forgive you for? Bad things? I, I guess you ask him to forgive you for the bad things, for the sins that you do. Like, like what, I asked. A deer in the headlights stared back at me. I thought I'd try a different approach. Why would Jesus forgive you? Uh, because you ask him, she said. I asked, what do you think God wants you to know? Oh, at this she smiled. He wants me to know that I should love myself and that there's nothing I can't do if I think I can't. And what does God want from you? I asked. Well, he wants me to do good stuff. You know, be nice to others and don't hang around with bad people. She says in conclusion, apparently, we've transformed the holy, terrifying, magnificent, and loving God of the Bible into Santa and his elves. And instead of transmitting the gloriously liberating and life-changing truths of the gospel, we have taught our children that what God wants from them is morality. And I would add to that, I think that oftentimes the church has taught people what God wants from us is morality. We have told people that being good, at least outwardly, is the be-all and the end-all of their faith. That's not the gospel. That is not passing down the faith to our children or to anyone. What God desires is a life of worship, is a life of thanksgiving coming from those that he has created to live in intimacy with himself who lost the opportunity because of sin, who were restored to that awesome privilege because of Christ on the cross. Thank you. Somebody had to say that. I really believe that a true heart's understanding of what God has done for us through his Son will find its way out of our mouths in praise and thanks to him. I guess what I'm trying to get at this morning, my friends, is how often do you thank God for his salvation? How often do you thank him? Every day do we thank him for his outrageous, demonstrative love to us in Christ? Do you remember to thank him because you were lost and you were standing in the way of his wrath and he rescued you from that wrath because of the sacrifice of his son. 
And he did that not because you were deserving, because he loved you. Not because he had to or because he owed you, but because of out of his perfect character flows the gift of salvation. And so, my friends, we've identified so far two things that we need to be a people who are constantly giving thanks for. God in his perfect being, his perfect character. What an awesome God. And out of that perfect character flowed for us salvation. We need to be a people who are constantly giving thanks to him for this awesome salvation in which we have been granted a part. Amen? Amen.